0: Hi everybody, this is Jeff Ashkin in Los Angeles, California with Roy Cole in Jersey City, New Jersey and Derek Kessler in Yokohama, Japan. And this is Coast to Coast to Coast Part 1 of our debate on the greatest books of all time. What are your top three favorite books of all time they could be the books you consider the best of all time your personal favorite or books that you think that people should read like immediately as soon as this podcast is over they should run to the library oh we can't run to the library they should (laughs) they should download these as soon as possible go ahead uh who wants to go first
1: why don't we do like our number threes go around then our number twos and number ones One at a time.
0: Our number threes? Okay. Uh, Who wants to do their number three first?
1: Roy, you want to have at it?
2: All right. I guess I will volunteer myself. Um, Okay. Well, a little bit of a spoiler. Um, All my books are nonfiction, which uh, was kind of tough. You know, I, I used to read... I used to read almost entirely fiction novels. Like in college, that's all I read. Uh, but I would say for the last decade or so, I've read almost entirely nonfiction. And, uh, and so when I think of like the books that have informed my worldview the most, it's really been the nonfiction that I've read recently. So with that in mind, uh, the number three book on my list, it's called Whiteout, and then the subtitle is The CIA, Drugs, and the Press, and it's by uh, Alexander Cockburn, which is kind of a funny name, and Jeffrey St. Clair. Um, and it's basically it's a book that goes through the very long and uh, sordid history of the CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency, uh, in the United States. Um, starting with uh, the first thing they talk about is is how they funded um, the uh, the contras uh, in Nicaragua who ended up smuggling crack cocaine into the United States and it basically started the entire crack a- epidemic uh, that has you know wreaked havoc uh, specifically on, on the black community in America um, so that was you know CIA funded and then it talks about how they Helped uh, import Nazi scientists after World War II, like uh, like they they were quite impressed with some of the things that the Nazi scientists were doing, and so rather than imprison them all, they actually brought many of them over to the United States to help them. Um, and it talks a lot about uh like MK Ultra and and their attempts to to come up with the mind control serum. Um, they they wanted to create like a you know that movie, The Manchurian Candidate? That was actually a goal of, of theirs to kind of create this mind-control serum. They thought LSD would be the substance that would basically hypnotize somebody into assassinating someone <laughs> that they wanted uh, assassinated. So so it gets into all those gory details. And then um, it, uh, it implicates the media as well. It gets into how... Um, uh, Gary webb was was the name of the journalist who um who uh, exposed the whole Contra scandal and like the drug smuggling scandal. Um, and you would think this journalist would be kind of like revered for for exposing this scandal. but uh, instead, the Washington Post and the New York Times, they uh, completely smeared him and uh, discredited him and and basically destroyed his career. He ended up committing suicide a few years later because he couldn't find any work, um, even though everything that he reported on over the years has, has played out to be true. Um, but, but all the major media outlets all uh, attempted to destroy him. So, so that was something that, that definitely changed the way I think uh, about the world.
1: Wow. I have not read it. <clears throat> Sounds like a chilling read. Um. Well, I'll go ahead. Thank you for sharing that, Roy. I'll go ahead. Um, Now for mine, I thought of all the nonfiction books that I've read, um, but (laughs) uh, in contrast to Roy's list, all of my books ended up being fiction and on top of that, literary classics. Um, They're all books that are in the public domain. Um, I tried to include more recent books, but I couldn't think, I couldn't justify putting them in my top three. So that's, uh, that's how my list came about. Uh, my number three is Gulliver's Travels, written in 1726 by Jonathan Swift. And, um, have you guys read it since, like, you've become adults?
0: Uh, I don't think no. I have,
2: no. No, we okay. read it in uh in high school in 10th grade, right, Jeff?
0: I believe so, yeah. Or was it 12th or 11th? Or maybe 11th, somewhere maybe, yeah. around there.
1: You read the, the adult version, not the yeah. children's version. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, I think... I didn't realize you read it in school. I don't think I read it in school. Maybe you were in AP English or something. Um, But... uh. I remember knowing of the stories, you know, since as far as I can remember, but not really considering it one of my favorite novels until I read it as an adult. And I I think I just like the fact that it can be enjoyed on so many levels. Um you you do have the children's version which is like a um, Boulderized version which removes all of the um content that could be construed as uh inappropriate for kids. And it's just, as a fantasy novel or story, it's very effective. You know, there's in the kids' version, there's basically two parts. Gulliver goes to Lilliput, and he's surrounded by tiny people. And then he escapes and goes to Brabignang, and he's surrounded by giants, which is kind of a fun, um, fun thing to imagine as a kid. But when I reread the book as an adult in its original form, I realized um, that it's so much more than that. There's actually four parts to the story, not two, and each part of the story um, essentially is a biting criticism of contemporary contemporaneous European society. And that's something that would obviously go over the heads of a lot of kids. But um, as an adult, I I thought it was such a fascinating read and su- just such an um, interesting way to provoke social commentary. And um, you can enjoy it just on the fantasy level, but then you can also uh, read into it and enjoy it on, on the uh, social level, social commentary level. So that was really enjoyable for me. That was my number three.
2: It is interesting. I did like the book in high school, and it's funny, whenever, they always make uh, movies of Gulliver's Mm -hmm. Travels, but whenever they make a movie, they almost always strip out all the uh, satiric, all the biting commentary from it, like all the things that make it a classic. uh, Exactly. They strip out all of that, and I think the most recent version was with Jack Black. uh, I don't like that one. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, where it's like you this know? slapsticky movie and it's just so funny to see them uh, completely take out everything that that makes it such a classic.
1: Yeah, but there is a um a miniseries version that stars Ted Danson.
2: Have you seen right. that one? That no, no, good. I haven't
0: seen that. That was on NBC. Yeah. That was good.
1: That one actually goes through the entire story and um retains the more um the more uh metaphorical parts of the story. So yeah. that that was the only version because yeah, after I read the book I was trying to see if there was a good uh movie version and, and that was <laughs> don't watch the skip out on the Jack Black version, but the <laughs> the Ted Danson one's actually uh pretty good.
2: Cool. Okay, I haven't seen that version.
0: All right. Well, before I get to my number three, I want to give an honorary mention to the book series uh, known as the Goosebump series. Now, the mm-hmm. Goosebump series were written Starring by all Jack of Black. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Jack Black once again coming up. But the Goosebump series, even though I would not say they're classics of literature, definitely were a part of my childhood that I really enjoyed. They were they were fun. They were fast. They they had twist endings. It was like reading a, a book. That was like a twilight episode, but it was aimed toward my age group being, I guess, around 10, 11. And uh, they were fast reads. I, I actually remember reading them as a kid, and I could read them in an hour. I mean, that's how fast they moved. Uh, if you really into it, you kind of knew what was going on. But I just I just enjoyed that series. I hadn't read past, I think, up to book 30. But uh, wow. I beca- yeah, no, they were fun. I mean, they were... A lot of fun. I even have my. I even recommended my my parents. I like had my mom read a couple of them. Actually, I said, "Oh, this is good. You might like this one," and she's like, yeah, I, "What?"
2: I have a a little funny story. In uh, I think it was fifth grade, maybe fourth grade. We did uh, a secret Santa, and the gift that I had given for the secret Santa was one of the Goosebumps books. What? I believe it was what? the Ghost Next Door.
0: I, I love that, that one. It. That's one. That's and, one, one uh, recommended. Yeah. <laughs>
2: the reaction of the person who ended up getting the book was sheer and utter disappointment that <laughs> he, that he received a book, right? Cause it's <laughs> like, if you know, fourth graders don't like to read. Um, but yeah, he had, he got the goosebumps book from me. He didn't know it was for me, but uh, he was uh, very disappointed. And so I did, never wanted to admit that, that it was my he gift for
1: the rest of he, that semester. We were just in hiding. He, yeah, uh, missed, he missed
0: out on a great story. That's actually one of the I Yeah, there. Jeff, I
1: I agree. I think I read about the first thirty or so of them as well, and I remember um,
0: looking forward to
1: because R.L. Stein would release one every every month or so, or every couple of months. I remember buying them as they were coming out. That's how into it I was at the time. Yeah.
0: No, but that was I,
1: sorry. No, that wasn't your top three, though. That was outside of your no, top that, three. Th- that are was your top three my-
0: all goosebumps books? It's just one, no, two, three. I, I, I would say my top two books are two fiction books, but I have to say I, you know, I, I, I thought a little outside the box, and my number three pick is McCall's Cookbook. Yes, I chose a cookbook, and let me tell you why. This cookbook was owned by my parents, and it was the first cookbook. I ever read, and it's the cookbook I still read to this day. In fact, I have my own cookbook, and most of the recipes are from this cookbook because they're very easy to read, very easy to inform you on how to make a recipe. And for for a child, I was I I I was able to use that knowledge to make really delicious meals. I mean, obviously, I wasn't doing it on my own, but my parents, mostly my mom, would say, was using this cookbook, and I just felt like I felt very the way it's written is very uh, easy to use if you have no knowledge of being in the kitchen. And the 1973 edition is the one I'm most familiar with. There's one in the, there's another one that they updated every, every, uh, I believe it's every decade, but I really thought it was something that, yes, it's not, um, it's not a fiction or a nonfiction, but it is definitely, well, I guess a nonfiction, but it's definitely something that I would say if, if you're out there and you're, and you're, afraid of cooking or you're not sure how to get started in the kitchen, this is a book that I think would really help uh, overcome your fear and unlock your potential as a chef. Did,
2: Did you say that you have your own cookbook? I do have my own cookbook, yeah. Like that, you've made like you've created yeah. your own cookbook, like Askins cookbook. I, I do actually. I do. You
1: just crossed I, out I, and wrote Askins. <laughs> <laughs> just, <laughs> just
0: a subset of the recipes in McCall's cookbook. I, I took the recipes from there, and I took recipes from uh, my mom. Would collect recipes and put them in her book, and I took the recipes from those books and put in my own book, which I actually.
1: <laughs> it's it's your own collection. It's not like you've published your own. No, no, recipe, no. Right? no, Let's
0: be, let's be clear. No, it's a it's my own book that I use for. Uh, I've been i have no my own book that I use for my own recipes. Yes,
2: but have you thought about publishing it for the world have, at large?
0: Yeah, I have, but I, I'll wait till the restaurant is I, when I open my first restaurant, and then maybe I'll I'll publish a book of the recipes from the restaurant. I don't know, or maybe when I'm a, when I'm, when this podcast really takes off, and they refer back to this episode. I'd be like, hey, so what are those recipes you got,
2: huh? Coast to Coast to Coast, the cookbook.
0: Yeah. Well, (laughs) great food, great food knows no coast. Anyway, all right. So back to, wait, who started first? I think Derek, you were first. Oh, no, Roy, you were first. Uh, Yeah, go ahead. What's your name? All right.
2: So now we're on number two. Um, Yes. So, so I guess if you thought my third choice was a little bit of a downer, Uh, This will be a more uplifting book. Uh, So my number two book is uh, The Rape of Nanking by uh, (laughs) Iris Chang, also nonfiction. Um, I'm not sure how many people are even familiar with this event. Uh, So The Rape of Nanking is actually a a pretty well-known historical event during World War II when um, the Japanese Imperial Army, Army uh, over the span of like six weeks, they massacred uh, around three hundred thousand Chinese civilians. It's a little de- debated, like exactly the, the the final total, but but most people put it around like three hundred thousand civilians that were killed in a span of uh, six weeks. And um, it it goes into pretty gory detail. It even actually has photos from from uh, the massacre and. Uh, it gets into the history of um, uh, the like the scientific experiments that they would conduct, very very similar, analogous to the Nazis, and uh, that they conducted scientific experiments. Um, it talks about the the comfort women, uh, who hmm. were essentially uh, sex slaves uh, that were kind of uh, picked up along the way as the Japanese uh, rolled through China, and uh, so that. Oh, by the way, uh, Iris Chang um, also committed suicide, similar to, to Gary Webb from the last book, uh, which I I don't know what that means exactly. But I, I do think it's very peculiar that, that these people who kind of expose some of the uh, more um, malevolent parts of society uh, end up uh, killing themselves. I don't, I don't know if there's something to that, but anyway, um, this was the book that made me realize how much history I'm not aware about uh, or that we're not taught in uh, U.S. classrooms. Um, I don't know about you guys, but this never came up at all in all of my history classes. It's so strange to me because it seems like such a monumental event. And uh, when I graduated high school, I had no idea. I actually didn't even know China was involved in World War II when I graduated high school. Um, but it turns out this was like a, a monumental event. And uh, we didn't learn about it at all. Um, at least I didn't when I was in high school. And, uh, and so that, that book actually paved the way for me to learn about uh, other countries and what was happening in other countries and so I read about the Armenian genocide, which uh, another thing that never gets talked about in uh, U.S. history classes, and then uh, like the Russian gulags. Um, but that, but this was the rape of it was, was like the beginning of that journey into realizing that that history is more than just uh, you know what's happened to the United States, and um, it's it's pretty mind boggling to me that that none of these events are, are even. Like, it's like they don't exist. If if you go through uh, uh, a curic- a curriculum in the United States, you don't hear about these things.
0: You did you guys yeah. did you
2: guys know about that event?
0: Yeah,
1: I I, I, I I mean I I probably learned about it after my secondary education. So I learned about it on my own, but I. Like you were at, don't remember being taught about it in any depth at school uh to the point where it would seem like any to have any sort of significance um in japan um I'm pretty sure that the the government's official stance is that you know they're sympathetic towards what they did, but as you said um it is analogous to the holocaust even to the point where there are people who deny it there are uh rape of nanking deniers here um i wouldn't say that it's the majority in any way but just just like there are people who deny the holocaust um but there are um you know they they do make they have made reparations um to to china and it is something that you occasionally hear about here but like you I don't think we really learned about it in depth um or yeah the Armenian genocide the Rwandan genocide as well um a lot of people died there and uh we are taught more about things that yeah like those kind of things it's it's almost as if they don't concern us when we're when we're going through our high school education so yeah. um,
2: that's the main thing. The main thing I remember from US history classes is that uh, Eli Whitney invented the cotton gin. <laughs> that that was taught <laughs> like four different years. <laughs> that same fact came up. It really and drove I that. Like, wow, I, I guess this is really important part of history.
0: <laughs> I remember learning about the, uh, the 1918 uh, pandemic when I was in college. And it was just like a minor thing, too. It was like, oh yeah, by the way, in nineteen eighteen, from nineteen eighteen to nineteen twenty, uh, more people died in this uh, influenza pandemic than all of World War One and World War Two. All right, moving on. And I'm like, <laughs> wow, that, that might be something, you know, we could <laughs> learn about. Maybe that might come up again. I don't know. Maybe we can learn from our mistakes or something. Oh, okay, never mind. I,
1: th- I thought World War Two had the most deaths and that was followed by the nineteen eighteen Spanish flu pandemic.
0: It depends on it depends on who you ask because there are a lot of different sources who will say that it was in the millions. Like some people say it was like one million, some people say it was in the tens of millions. It depends, you know, because unfortunately back then we were in the middle we <laughs> the United States was in the middle of World War One and uh it was downplayed in order to not affect morale for the for the war. So it, you know, I don't know. We're not, we're not quite sure. But according to various sources, it was, uh, it was, in the, it was in the millions. So anyway, I remember but,
1: not being taught about the Spanish flu pandemic much in school, and then learning about it as an adult, and then being pretty astonished that we kind of glossed over that event in history. Yeah. Right. So speaking of anyway. History Um, (laughs) kind of connects to my second novel, which is The Time Machine by H.G. Wells, uh, written in 1895. Um, Not the first time travel book ever written. Um, There's the uh, Mark Twain novel, um, A Yankee. What's it called? A Yankee. Uh, Connecticut Yankee
2: Yankee and King King King
1: Arthur's Court. Yeah, which is also a fantastic novel. Um, But I, I like the time machine. Um, It was the first novel to actually coin the word time machine and the first novel to suggest a device that the user could um, control to go to the time of their choice um, rather than just being flown back by some force um to a time beyond their control um the reason this book stands out so much to me is because i think it stimulated my imagination more than any other book i read it um when i was fairly young and i rem- i remember like so You know, we we watch Back to the Future, and there's other movies, there's other time travel stories. But most of the time, especially when you're dealing with movies, you you notice these stories. They'll usually go to like one other time zone, right? It's not like they're going back and forth into lots of different times. I mean, sometimes there are, but usually for cost concerns or whatever, you know, to recreate so many sets in a movie would be pretty uh, prohibitive. Um, But Like, even in Back to the Future, you know, they go back to 1955 and then they go back to 1985, and that's the whole movie. But did you ever think, like, if you had a time machine, like, wouldn't you want to go to, like, many different times, you know? And um, so the the book, The Time Machine... So in The Time Machine, the protagonist, who is not named... um, goes to the year eight hundred and two thousand seven hundred and one. And as a kid, like you there are other time travel stories where you went to you know the year two thousand or the, or you know, you went to the past. But like to to travel so far into the future um it really made me think like what what could possibly what what could the world possibly look like at that time? And I, I guess that just really um got me thinking and got me really interested in science fiction as a genre. And um furthermore, the story goes thirty million years into the future after that. And uh, hilarity ensues no, <laughs> that's, quite
2: a, that's quite a that's quite a ballsy risk to take that there'll actually yeah. be some sort of world <laughs> to go to. Well, I don't want to give anything away. And- Yeah, I don't want
1: to give anything away, but um, but the fact that they he really went all out as far as like the imagination, um, that was just really interesting to me as a kid, and also um, during the future. um, Just one second. Okay, in the future, um, there's the Eloy and uh, that's social commentary in in some levels, not quite as much as, as uh, Gulliver's Travels, I would say, but, I mean, it does make you think about, um, you know, a possible future that we could be heading towards, and it's also kind of relevant now um, in the United States where, you know, we're so divided now, um, and... Uh, the society is completely divided in the future as well. So I don't know. I just, the, the way it kind of opened up the, the genre of science fiction to me and and got me thinking to what, what could be in the future um, that made the book really uh, stand out for me and still one of my favorites.
2: So, so you're saying uh, like, like there's no escape. Like if I want to go 30 million years into the future, so I don't have to deal with like political parties fighting each other. Uh, it turns out that's still happening in the year thirty million AD. Like the Zublagar, the, uh, Zubligar- the Gorbagluks, and the Zuboids are, are are at each other's throats. Sounds like someone into
0: uh, the future. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler. <laughs>
1: yeah, um, okay. yeah, kind of in a way. Um, it's actually a novella. Uh, okay. sorry. It's a novella, so it's it's fairly short, and uh, you could read it in less than a day um, if you're interested. Okay. Oh,
2: it it so- would be funny if, um, like, let's say your time machine was painted red, and then you went to the future, like 30 million years, and they're like, your time machine is red. That is the color of the Glorbozoid party. You are an enemy of the people. And then, like, they killed you because your time machine was the wrong color.
1: Yeah. It's um, one of the dangers of time travel, actually, that they talk about <laughs> in the book. Political party.
0: In terms of dangers, like, I would think that if you travel back in time, you probably wouldn't be able to eat like the food there because I think the bacteria on the food would not be uh, acceptable to your stomach because people didn't really wash their hands and there's probably like a lot of bacteria that you're not accustomed to from being in this time and this time period. So I don't know.
1: Back in time, you could bring some sort of remedy for that. You know?
0: Oh yeah. But you know, you never know someone you could, you know, in if you were in a time travel movie, chances are when you go back in time, there'll be some problem with your time machine. You'll get knocked out, and then they'll wake you up and give you water, and the water could have, you know, bacteria True. in it. So just remember that, Derek, in case you go back when you go back. <laughs> yeah,
1: keep that in mind, and also not to paint the machine red. Thanks for that advice.
2: Ray. Also, uh, if your time machine had a toilet and you went back in time before toilets existed, <laughs> uh, everybody would be using the toilet in your time machine. They would be like amazed, and there would be a line. Like out the door just to take a crap in your time machine.
1: Uh, good to uh, know. I'm <laughs> sure H. G. Wells is fascinated by this. Is, is that in the book? Is that in, I yeah, haven't any- read the time machine. No, he doesn't really get into um, the logistics of bathrooms.
0: All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna move on to mine. Um, speaking of shit, um, no. Um, <laughs> No. Uh, speaking of my, speaking is your of, number
2: one uh, everybody poops?
0: I, you know, <laughs> damn it, Roy! You always got to step <laughs> on oh, my. No, uh, actually, I have a sci-fi book as well, and my number two was it is, I should say was my number two is Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. Uh, um,
1: that was
0: that was on my.
1: It,
0: yeah. Uh, honestly, one of the things I love about this book so much is the fact that it was a book I had to read in school. And I really, really enjoyed it. I was surprised how much I enjoyed it as a, a teenager. But then again, Mary Shelley was a teenager when she wrote it. She was only 18 years old. And her and Lord Byron and Piercy, uh, Percy Shelley were uh, actually, it's funny, I'm going to say quarantine, but they were actually on a retreat and they challenged each other to write stories. And she wrote this story and it was it's a brilliant story. Um, I, I really enjoy the framing of the story. There's actually three different, there's the captain story who finds Frankenstein, then Frankenstein's story, then the monster story. And the way it's done is just, it's way ahead of its time. And it's, to me, one of the first existential stories that I read, uh, you know, about the meaning of existence and the meaning of what it is to be a human. Its influence is countless uh, on other stories. And it's a fun read. Um, so I would definitely say that it's it's in my top three I, it's hard to say I, I, it's hard to say what was really my number one because I was this close to making this my number one but I chose something else but it's it's just an amazing book
1: Yeah I agree it was I think it was on my top four I definitely shortlisted it for this list but I didn't include it in my top three the thing for me that surprised me the most was how um deeper of a story it is than you would have you would expect it to be if you had only seen the movie from the thirties.
2: Or and... if you only uh, like went out during Halloween and saw the costumes <laughs> and that yeah. was your only knowledge of it. Yeah. right.
1: Yeah. I mean, just, I guess the big, the first big surprise is that Frankenstein refers not to the monster, but to the doctor. And then you realize everything you know about Frankenstein is a lie. And <laughs> The the story, yeah, it's not just like a horror story like you'd expect it to be. It's actually a really interesting and introspective story that uh, I agree. I mean, I think anyone could enjoy it.
0: Yeah. Hello? Anyone still there? Yeah, yeah. I think this my, time. my 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 speakers just went dead. I was like, whoa shit. Anyway, but uh, speaking of dead, Frankenstein is a great read. Anyway, so <laughs> but what's so funny is, though, like, the name Frankenstein is such a specific term that she made up, and now people use it all the time. And she just made it. wasn't any sort of, you know, uh, it's funny because the title was Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus. And what's interesting is, you know, she made the Greek uh, connection, but people love using the term Frankenstein to describe any type of. <laughs> creation. So <laughs>
2: they thought Frankenstein rolled off the tongue better.
0: Yeah, <laughs> exactly.
2: It sounds Jewish. Doesn't it? Frankenstein
0: Frankenstein maybe was was he Jewish I, stone
1: in German. Right. And, uh, there's, there is some, um, meaning to the name. I I don't remember the exact meaning, but there she definitely, cho- it wasn't a random choice. There's, there's some, right. uh, yeah. Some, some meaning to the words.
0: Thanks for joining us today. Please check in next week for part two of our debate on the greatest books of all time.